Roderick Cook sat down with moderator Ada Brown Mather for a one-on-one interview in November of 1986. I'm Hope Clark, a member of the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, and this is Masters of the Stage. This program is produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing. Because this program was not originally intended for broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. As a result, portions of the conversation may have been edited. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, may I introduce Mr. Roderick Cook. Um, It's very nice of you to come because I'm sure you're going to perform this evening, and I think it's quite remarkable that you're here seeing us now. Yes, you do. I knew you'd say something like that. Uh, um, Mr. Cook has directed, having, of course, years ago created Oak Howard, and is also in it, of course. So that's why we're very grateful to you for coming here just before your performance. Um, Now, let me read all the other things that he's done. Mm -hmm. Uh, On Broadway, I imagine this is, Woman of the Year, The Man Who Came to Dinner, Keen, The Girl Who Came to Supper, A Scent of Flowers, Hadrian VII. And I see that you directed Peter O'Toole's uh, American debut, mm-hmm. Present Laughter. And you played... Hmm? And, and Uncle Vanya. And, and you, yes, and you directed Uncle Vanya and played the title role in Uncle Vanya. Mm-hmm. And you've done lots of films and lots of television. Mm-hmm. But now we're here to talk about Noah Cut. So now what I gather is that... And we want, to, we want you to tell us how all this started. Because I gather that it started in Canada in 1970 or something, and then it arrived on Broadway after a, a lo- long tour in 1972. <coughs> and then I also read that Coward himself saw it in 1973 in a wonderful gala uh, performance, which turned out to be his last public appearance. So now, how did it all start, and how? what was his relationship to the material? Did he have uh, a lot to say about what would be in it and the format, or did he just have to approve your ideas or what? Over right. to you. Okay, yes, that's Vegas tab version of all that. <laughs> uh, people were just starting to do this sort of thing. Ben Dagley had done the, um, the co-quarterly visitor show with Kay Ballard down to the village, and it was successful, and I thought, hmm... Uh, if they can do that with Coe Porter, I think I could do that with Noel Coward. And I had been doing, I'd been writing and directing a lot of reviews in Canada at that point. I'd become sort of the Julius Monk of Toronto. And uh, so uh, what happened was that I'd already, I knew Noel through working for him in The Girl Who Came to Supper, which was the last Broadway show that he wrote. Uh, and so we were on a sort of friendly basis. I was never a great friend of this, but we were very, people good professional friends. So how it all came about, this is literally true, uh, I took up pen and paper and wrote, Dear Noel, look, stop me if you've heard it, but how about a review based on the work and music of Expecting, uh, with typical politeness and charm, a sort of evasive reply about three weeks later, etc., um, etc. Et to my intense surprise and delight, ten days later I got an airmail letter back saying, Go lobby, what a lovely idea, send me a dummy program and let's talk. I had no dummy program. I had a list of 94 totally obscure songs. But I got word from the master, hey, you know, this is possible. So it's amazing how quickly you think when you've got to. Uh, so I glared at these 94 totally obscure songs, one wet afternoon in Toronto, and they sort of began to sort of dance before my eyes, and I suddenly saw there were a lot of songs with women's names in them, and there were a lot of 
music hall type songs and a lot of songs to do with England. And I thought, aha, uh -huh. because I'd already rejected the idea of biography as being boring and all that sort of thing as being pretentious. And I wanted to make it as light as I thought the material should be and so that I could go in any direction. And that's how I came across the dummy program of doing it via various themes. Sent it back to Noel. Noel said, absolutely wonderful idea. Here's the name of the desert, my lawyer. Go ahead. That was the extent of his involvement. <laughs> it's a short answer, really. Yeah, it's a very short answer. Uh, I think uh, because he trusted me. Mm -hmm. uh, he did like the way that I worked, as I say, in this, this mm -hmm. thing called the Go to Kim Supper, and then he loved to like the dummy program. Mm -hmm. And I went on working, and I would always send him um, mm -hmm. copies of what, how it was going on, uh, because it then took a long time. That was in 65. It took seven years before it reached New York. Uh, that again, the tab version of that story is that I thought, obviously, I was going to do it with my Canadian company and it would be a wild success and I would bring it immediately to off Broadway. What happened was uh, the Canadian company fell to pieces. The project was picked up by at least six producers with enormous enthusiasm and put down again almost immediately with great regret by all of them. Uh, a version of it was in fact produced on Broadway at the Bellamore Theatre called Noel Cowd's Sweet Potato. This was in 1968, the year of hair when nudity and rock music was the answer to absolutely everything, and Lee Theodore, who should be nameless, uh, took the show, uh, took everybody's clothes off, and made everything rock music to make the whole thing now. I had Dorothy Loudon, George Grizzard, Carol Shelley, Tom Lieber, and Bonnie Schoen, Arthur Mitchell making his Broadway debut. They all bared their all in this sweet potato. Uh, Mrs. Worthy, don't put your daughter on the stage, Mrs. Worthington, was sung by George Grizzard as a renegade priest with a backup group doing Dua Dua. The audience was understandably mystified, uh, and uh, it closed quite quickly. Uh, and I rather put the whole project there. I thought, well, you know, I lost control of the whole thing, and it was a, it was a whole macabre story. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then come 1970, the interesting thing about the timing with Noel is, um, is, is timing, because in 68, Emily Clive Barnes wrote a notice of this particular show, which had been gimmicked up to beyond endurance with all the latest possible fads and um, uh, folder roles and said this, is this show is obviously aimed at the middle-aged and heart, meaning Noel. Two years later, 1970, Noel was knighted. He was the top of the heap again. Um, he had what he, he called himself Dad's Renaissance. Hayfield mm -hmm. uh, was a riot of the National Theatre and he mm -hmm. was back on top. Mm -hmm. uh, this on, on a celebration of his being knighted a um, friend in Toronto said, why don't we fluff up that old idea of the Noel Cow Review? And I said, I've got the perfect title. It's called To Serve With Love, uh, which is in fact what we called it. It was actually called Noel Cow Review or To Serve With Love. And I reworked all the material and I put it on with three people. I was going to put it on with four, but we found this magic girl who could do absolutely everything. And uh, it went on. It was an immediate smash hit. And that's how really how Oak Howard really mm -hmm. came, but it came all the way back from yes, 1965. But that was the really beginning of Oak That was the beginning of as it is today, yes mm -hmm. indeed. Then that was then and then uh, we went to Boston where it died, we went to Chicago where it died, uh, and then nineteen seventy two suddenly uh, we patched into the new theatre and there we were. Mm -hmm. You must have been pretty worried wondering what Noel Coward was going to think of it, or did you He kept away from the whole thing as a matter of fact. Um, until this uh, he was always, he was always you know, very polite and very interested mm -hmm. in the whole thing. Uh, I don't think he was delighted in his success. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't think he was too troubled by any failures that we had along the way. He just, mm -hmm. he was very pragmatic. He was an extremely pragmatic gentleman. Mm -hmm. Well then, now tell us how this 
revival came about? Did you suddenly think that we wanted a little wit and charm and uh, the refinement the revival, on the stage? Or the what revival happened? came about by a quite remarkable, uh, possibly the most remarkable set of circumstances, uh, this side of you know, Warner Brothers in about 1933. Uh, a man advertised for me in Backstage magazine, which I didn't see. Uh, the secretary of an ex-agent of mine called up and said, Roderick, somebody's looking for you. And I said, it's about time, and all the usual jokes went on. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a small ad which said, Roderick Cook, question mark. If you are the Roderick Cook who produced the Noel Coward show, da -da 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 -da, please get in touch with Raymond J. Greenwald, 212. I nearly didn't answer it, because usually when, since the success in 72, when people have tried to get hold of me personally about the show instead of going through Music mm -hmm. Theatre International usually means that they want to do three performances with no royalties and a condemned bowling alley somewhere. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's it. So I called the gentleman who seemed perfectly recognized me, outlined what he did. He was in real estate and he had, uh, he wanted to get into theatrical production. He got involved with real estate. He'd always had longings for show business and that story before. Huh, huh, huh. Mm -hmm. So he, um, he said, was it worth talking about? I said, it's worth talking about. It's a slow day. Uh, he gave his address as 445 Park Avenue, and I thought, well, that's not bad, you know, MCA and Universal mm -hmm. put up with mm -hmm. it. Uh, and he said his office was on the 16th floor. And he also said, which also I, I, I love a great deal, this is what we were talking about, the energy of New York. Mm -hmm. uh, he said, is it worth talking about? And I said, yes, he said, this afternoon? Mm -hmm. I said, sure. And so at 2.30 I turned up, and the first clue that I had that it might mean more than three performances of them bowling alley, was that his office was not on the 16th floor. His office was the 16th mm. floor. So we went in and we chatted, and he seemed perfectly honorable, and it turned out that uh, not only did he have the 16th floor on 445 Park Avenue, he owned the building. Mm -hmm. One of eight. Uh, nevertheless, I thought, I'm not going to take this seriously because of the reason rich people are rich, they keep it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they don't invest in show business, for God's sake. So I took this very lightly, and uh, I called the general manager of the original production, Richard Cedar, who's been a good friend of mine over the years, and I said, look, there's some nut here who's got delusions of grandeur, etc., etc., and could you put together just a few basic figures for him and explain, you know, what the grown-ups do? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we'll meet, and we met on the Monday. It all happened very fast. So we met there. And uh, the outline was done, and we said, oh, it's got to be sheep, and we did all that sort of, you know, little dumb stuff. Then it came down to the absolutely unavoidable question, how much is this going to cost? And Richard produced the, to me, absolutely astonishing sum, $400,000. And he said it's going to cost $400,000. And the slight pause, and I thought, I think I could probably make that double bill at the Regency mm -hmm. that I've been wanting to see. Because uh, I didn't think, you know, I thought that's it. Mm -hmm. And the man said, okay, let's do it. Remarkable story. It's not only remarkable there, because he has no partners. You understand what I'm saying? No partners. One check. Had he seen it all those years? He had not seen the original no. production. He had seen a cabaret version of it that some young friends of mine, Dalton Cathy and Russ Thacker and Terry Clausen, had done a Ted Hook's old uh, giant on, um, at on stage um, when I was doing Broad of the Year. And uh, he'd seen that, he'd seen that three times, and thought mm -hmm. it was um, cute and adorable. It was exactly the sort of small thing that he wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, suddenly it grew from there. I didn't take him seriously for the longest while until the checks cleared. Well, now then, so then you started, you got going on it, you had mm -hmm. some money. 
Uh, how did you alter it? Has it been altered at all for this what's, uh, or update or anything? It's absolutely... It's not absolutely no, the same, not but I mean, you know, when, it, when it's been tried and tested for seven years and the reason it shows yes. the success is, and of course it is extremely well written, but my, yes. when it says devised and directed by Roderick Cook, um, it means it because the construction mm-hmm. uh, is um, Rachromian steel. Mm-hmm. I mean, the construction mm-hmm. of the show mm-hmm. is the show. Mm-hmm. When I've mm-hmm. come back to it over the years and I've occasionally mm-hmm. directed it after many years, I, mm-hmm. I think this is a very good piece of work. Mm-hmm. The way one thing leads to the other, because mm-hmm. I really, mm-hmm. construction was the background of everything in musical plays, and particularly this. Yes, I wasn't actually mean that. I, I, was, I knew, I felt sure of that, mm-hmm. but, were, but little references were slightly altered. I rewrote the rewrite of the rewrite of the rewrite of the rewrite of Let's Do It, of course. Uh, yeah. But for the rest, the construction remains the same. I did change one number, but it's really the mm-hmm. identical numbers mm-hmm. because he wrote the same sort of number a lot. Yes. Uh, I'd like you to talk a little about um, directing this particular show and indeed your experience of working on material like this mm-hmm. here. Uh, you know, um, Tynan said that uh, Coward had taken the fat off uh, comic, English comic dialogue, didn't he? Yeah. And uh, I thought, when I saw this, how enormously successful this was in the way that you had managed such wonderful understatement and pointing and all these other things. And this is unusual, uh, I think, when... uh, Of course, I know you're just as English as can be. I I mean, the general overall thing with working with two other American people, because the American rhythms are much more on stress and English rhythms are more on inflection. Mm-hmm. How do, could you tell us a little about how you worked on that? Because I thought it was so very much like what we're led to believe, uh, indeed what we had evidence of, those of us who are old enough, um, what Noel Coward himself was like in his, uh, in his pointing and phrasing and all this wonderful wit understatement thing that he did so well. Could you talk a little bit about how, how you achieved that? Brute force. Brute force and bullying. Brute force, bullying, bullying, an example saying, do you hear the difference between Mm -hmm. doing that and doing that? Mm -hmm. And because we are extremely bright uh, people, uh, they said, sure. Uh, There is no, at not any point during the show, is there any attempt for anybody to know a coward? I do not play know a coward. Catherine does not play Betty Lawrence or Peter Day. We are all play essentially ourselves. Yes, but they. And nor nor do we do. We don't talk like Noel. When, no. Noel's, when Noel saw this show, mm-hmm. I mean, I get a lot of this all the time, oh, you are Noel Coward. No, I'm not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just play two records, mm-hmm. play a record of Noel doing Marvelous Party, me doing Marvelous mm-hmm. Party, and they're two mm-hmm. different things. Mm-hmm. I've got a feeling sometimes that all bored people of a certain age with an impression mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. look like Noel Coward. Um, when Noel saw the show afterwards, and it, it was, you know, I can do 25 minutes on that evening, uh, he said, I caught you doing me twice. <laughs> I said yes. I did it deliberately to show that I know who's who. <laughs> uh, so it's not a question of doing uh, Cowardian things. No, but it's but inherent it's in the rhythm, isn't it's it? It's inherent to do with the rhythm of the playwright, whoever he is. I mean, I would do this okay, if I were doing yes. this with um, uh, Sean O'Casey or Chekhov or Tennessee Williams. You do this because this is how the dialogue requires to mm-hmm. be mm-hmm. interpreted, not necessarily spoken. Um, but yes. that, and I, but because I have chosen these things uh, so specifically, mm-hmm. and because what I know that this format works, because mm-hmm. it's been done all over, all over the world now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a question of listening to the way the material wants to go, mm-hmm. and if the artists mm-hmm. are sensitive, which Catherine and Patrick mm-hmm. are, mm-hmm. Um, 
it's like falling off a log. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was enormously successful. The um, wonderful understatement of it all. And did, did, wasn't it, Coward said something about, I, uh, I have to be left alone. My dialogue has to be left alone. I thought you did. Oh, exactly. Yes. Oh, exactly. Yes, indeed. You know, which is why we can get on to you know, other recent blunders uh, of the canon of Coward. You can talk a lot about that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Leave it alone. Trust it. That was my mm -hmm. first, first word to... Uh, to the guys at the, um, at the Helen Hayes, I said, first thing you do, trust the material, then trust me, mm -hmm. and it'll all become. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You'll pass the threshold of pain, and it'll mm -hmm. uh, You know, I read somewhere, I don't know if you uh, remember this, but the coward has been likened to Festy. And uh, indeed, I think when you, particularly when you read his poetry, that there's uh, really a feeling of tremendous uh, loneliness or pain or something underneath a lot of his work. You know, and I, I'm thinking of the poem, I Travel Alone. Since you uh, know him, knew him, and know, certainly must know an enormous amount about his work, do you think that he uh, was uh, very aware of, uh, did he feel very powerfully that he was living in the <coughs> luxury and there was a lot of poverty around? Did he not, uh, uh, did, was he worried about, uh, was he on edge? Was he always acting a role when he went into the society that he had indeed created? I mean, he, he was creating um, a version of the society that he entered and satirizing that. Mm. Or did he feel a kind of loneliness because of his, uh, um, the fact did he desire to be sexually straight in, a, in an, an era when was less outspoken that he was a homosexual. What was what are your? Uh, you I've no answer to any of those. I'm no. afraid <laughs> they're very deep and meaningful questions. Yes, yeah, they are. I, I mean, I, which I don't. You don't think there's anyone as, as far as he invented he invented his own persona. I mean, yes, that's that was it. Yes, that was straightforward uh, to anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, which is one of the reasons why it lasted through um, until the outbreak of World War Two, mm -hmm. and then was and then went into deep decline mm -hmm. uh, after World War II. For about 20 years, he couldn't put a foot right. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And then it was only uh, some years later when time changed yet again. Mm -hmm. We had what, is, what he called as Renaissance. The thing that interests me, because yes. it really comes down to the whole thing, what we should be talking about should do with, with the playwright and the director, because all the yes. director does is interpret the author through yes. the actors to mm -hmm. the audience. That's all mm -hmm. he does. Mm -hmm. um, all the rest is hogwash. And uh, what I've done in trying to do exactly that in interpreting yes. the author through the actors to the audience is I've made, of course, I've chosen the material because I'm also a functionist co-author. Mm -hmm. uh, the thing that I, I like to, I like people to comment on, the more thoughtful um, members of the audience are okay to pick up on various clues of indeed sadness along the way mm -hmm. because various moments come. Yeah, One of the most frightening things that happens to me, and I've done this show quite a long, long time, off and on, uh, there is a perfectly placed, I may say, uh, in the middle of Act Two, there is a short poem which says, I am no good at love. Yes. I My heart should be wise and free, mm -hmm. but I kill the unfortunate golden goose, whoever it may be, mm -hmm. with over-articulate tenderness and too much intensity. I am no good at love. Mm -hmm. I betray it with little sins. I feel the misery of the end in the moment it begins and the bitterness the last goodbye is the bitterness that wins. Ah! Oh, 
the person yes. who wrote that also wrote, I'll follow my yes. you were there, I'll see you yes. again. It's the most extraordinary thing between it's somebody, I, I, mean, I did both write to him, I, I, yes. as I said, we never create friends, but it was, it was nice to be able to, mm-hmm. to write. I was, he did an extraordinary sort of effect. I always felt I had to shave and put in a collar and tie before writing him a postcard. <laughs> uh, and I do remember describing to him that I said, that's the best lyric poem since Emily Bronte. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, it is it's an extraordinary yes. piece of work. And to me, I think it's possibly the only unaffected thing he ever wrote. Uh, it's direct, very personal, and I just think the interest yes. as far as playwrights and directors are concerned, directors interpreting yes. playwrights, is that that is there, and uh, he did yes. say it, and it's exactly the reverse of I'll follow my secret heart yes. and I'll see you again, yes. and all the romantic and romanticism and yes. sentimentality of so much else that he did. And uh, I must say, I thought you could, those moments were captured in that very well, because that is there in Carla, isn't it's it? It's there for the yes. more thoughtful viewers. Yes. You know, it's like at the end when we sing A Room with a View, and it's all lovely, and we're singing a yes. cute and darling number by A Room with a View. Yes. And I say, sorrow will never come, and, the girl, and I make the girls sing, oh, will it ever come true? And there's a moment, it's like the little cloud passes. It's over in a moment, but it's yes. there. Yes, because these things <clears throat> are there, and it... it uh, it causes me to wonder what Carl's place is in the whole period, and uh, with an overall view, or is it too early to say of the um, theatre? I mean, is he only going to be? Is he going to be looked? Uh, future generations are they going to think of him as representing the foibles of the time, or is there going to be? Are people going to recognise something deeper that we've been talking about uh, now? Because. Uh, I, I wonder, talking about it's it for very years and years and years. I think it depends which plays you're talking about. You do write an awful lot of very bad plays. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Private Lives is an extraordinary play. I've seen it quite a lot, um, mainly badly done. Um, but it's the most extraordinary love story. Uh, Life Spirit will go on because it's, mm-hmm. just a, little, it's a funny situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Designed for Living is a very teasing play. Uh, I've been in it once and uh, it doesn't really quite work. It's a very it's a teasing play because what it's about uh, is interesting. Um, I think it will go on in the sense that, that uh, because in the sense of Shaw, Wilde, mm-hmm. um, Sheridan, Congi, there's a whole line mm-hmm. through mm-hmm. of uh, mm-hmm. comedies of manners, mm-hmm. I think, really, which is what they basically are. Uh, one of the reasons I think why he went to the media disfavor is that we didn't have any manners and nobody has any manners, which is why one of, one of the things where it's when you do Carol today, I mean, you are doing, I'm not doing yesterday's, um, yesterday's hits, and I'm doing what is for people under a certain age and almost completely foreign language mm-hmm. and totally foreign media. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I approach it quite direct with that way, as saying that I have to, I don't feel like I'm not going to explain it and say, I'm not going to listen. Really, what do I mean by that? Uh, but you have to, um, not expect that they will that anybody will know anything about this at all but it's just as remote as doing um where the world to a lot of people mm-hmm. and why not mm-hmm. you know um coward of course really sort of had a, uh, in his early plays well no perhaps not i'm not talking about the vortex but maybe later on he really had to make his own uh style of uh, speaking and all this uh, half sentences and all this this, this was pretty shocking and uh, to the well-rounded play and to the way people in the well-rounded sentences what i think is interesting is the fact that he when we came to uh, after 1956 after look back in anger period um the chore that um a coward sure <laughs> that the coward um 
should be considered so old-fashioned when really, in a way, he really knew about that stuff, about not saying it all out and really having uh, an awful lot of Amanda, uh, for example, in private lives, that thing is precisely going on. Then I read that he was really very fond of of Pinter, so that it looks as if there was some connection there. He he really did get on with Pinter. Do you know that? He wasn't wasn't writing in the vacuum. I mean, he mentioned his own persona. And when, again, that very very good piece by Tyne, and when he said, this is when Merle made his, um, was starting making his cabaret appearances, Mm -hmm. and he said, described Noel as a wonderful phrase, if it is possible to romp fastidiously, mm-hmm. that is what Noel does as a performer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then went on to say that he invented, as I say, his own persona, mm-hmm. and everybody, in 50 years' time, everybody will still know what is meant by a very Noel Coward sort of mm-hmm. person, mm-hmm. or play, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, mm-hmm. But that is interesting, isn't it, that really the very people who rejected him, he really had something in common with. He had something yeah, in common with the other. Yeah, because yes. when, you, when you think of Merrill, one of, the, one of the things that I've always tried to do, um, not that I've done that much, when I directed Present Laughter for, for Peter O'Toole, the first thing I said to the entire company, I said, would you please all put your hands over the name of the author or just scratch it out mm-hmm. of the play script or just don't think about it, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the minute you mention Noel Coward, mm-hmm. it sets up in mm-hmm. everybody's minds a certain... Mm-hmm style, a certain sound, a certain look, a certain way that you have to do, and mm-hmm. all they think of is no other part of the form, and everybody could go around being practical and doing mm-hmm. this sort of thing mm-hmm. all time, mm-hmm. uh, which is rubbish, mm-hmm. uh, and does the play as a great disservice, and I said, just look at the play, and okay, these are the people, this is where they are, this is what they want, and this is where they go, and this is who ends up with whom, mm-hmm. uh, let's treat it like any other play, and it's amazing, mm-hmm. the depths that you can find there, mm-hmm. I'm not going to say they're not going all the way down there, mm-hmm. But I mean, uh, that I found, I mean, I was, I was appalled by the, the George C. Scott highly successful production of Pleasant Laughter, which was done with a sledgehammer uh, and ignored all the stuff that Peter mm-hmm. and I had found in the play. As mm-hmm. I said, it wasn't at the lower depths, but mm-hmm. it just ignored everything and said, no, we're just passing, we're all, known, we're all doing novel code. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was rubbish. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the, the real stuff is, is right there. Mm-hmm. Somebody once said, and I, I stole it, I think or still the attitude, that if you actually look at the plot, which everybody thinks about Noel Coward to do with language and style and this, that, and the other, mm-hmm. try looking at the plot, mm-hmm. who ends up with whom and why, uh, it's an awfully good thing for, it's the first thing a director should do, I think, in doing any of the plays of Noel, have a look at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you'll find sort of amazing things. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what I found with Present Laughter. We found that, that, uh, that there was an extraordinary sort of undercurrent that was actually sort of trying to get back with his first wife. Uh, this is not a major dramatic point, um, and we built on top of this, but it meant that it gave, it gave the actors somewhere to go from there to there, instead of trying to juggle words and do all sorts of, um, you know, effective bits of acting. People came from somewhere and went somewhere. It's still true with Noel Coward, as it is with every other good artist. How did all that come up? Well, it's fascinating, however it came up. Um, now, the attitude to Noel the attitude yes. to Noel is something I really would like to get on about, because the minute you do mention yes. the name, yes. uh, people have that um, uh, image, uh, and you have to uh, fight like crazy yes. to stop them doing that, um, which is what I've done with O'Card, and right mm-hmm. at the top, we say, okay, no, this is us, yes. and in the work of the master, yes. this is the kind of thing that went yes. on. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I did when with um, 
uh, with Peter. I mean, we, it quite obviously wasn't Noel Coward, mm -hmm. and Peter couldn't be more unlike Noel mm -hmm. than anybody. Mm -hmm. And of course, it made the play work a great deal better. Mm -hmm. um, to try and get away from that thing without betraying the material, mm -hmm. which is why I say the best thing I think any director can do with Noel is forget that he wrote it, pick up the script as if it's by an unknown author, and say, oh, now, there's a man called Elliot, there's a girl called Amanda, and they've been married, and look at it as the plot of a play by somebody and say, okay, let's do this. Because otherwise, I think we're going to deep, deep trouble. Because, of course, it's not every, every playwright who is an actor or who makes his own world in the way that uh, Noel Coward did. So no, the, image, no the, the, the image of Noel as a performer yes. and also as, as this uh, star personality, yes, which really. he invented, mm -hmm. um, is still very strong. Mm -hmm. Except I'm delighted to say with the younger people, because the younger people are flocking yeah. to Ocar, which is wonderful, which means they have no preconception yes, of it at all, and yes. they fall in their eyes, I think it's yes. funny. Isn't it wonderful? Yeah. Yeah. This is one of the things I was so pleased to be able to report to Noel, because this yes. happened back in 72 with the first production, and on the, the gala evening. Um, it was lovely to be able to hiss in his ear on the occasional moments of how it had gone, how much, you know, the, I said, there are people at the stage door, we'll never see 17 again. Mm -hmm. um, Asking questions and wondering yes. what about some things. Yes. You've really been there. Yes, that must have been wonderful after yeah. it had such a bad time. Uh, you sure. know, when the, mm, yes. that was a, that's a marvelous story that he should be knighted. Uh, well, it was only three, and yet yet it had been brought up earlier. You know, and it it fell. Up, I, I I was reading his diary, so mm -hmm. I realised that. Uh, and then he had this wonderful thing just at the end of his life, didn't he? When he was, yes. and, you know, who could ask for anything and, more? Yes. Suddenly there he was, top of the heap, and yes. celebrated, and sir. Uh, and they had a whole <laughs> week on on the. Uh, BBC, and he called it Holy Week. Holy I love yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you've had experience directing both reviews and his plays. Well, I mean, I'll, 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 I'll say reviews. And Can you talk a little bit about um, these two things, directing review, and how do you look at this? very differently from a play, I mean, there's a, there is a huge difference. The huge difference, which yes. is much, much harder. Much harder, I would argue. The, so, yes. the hardest thing you can possibly Hard, do. Yes. It is the hardest thing you can possibly do. I mean, King Lear is easy. <coughs> I mean, you've got a nice plot and you've got all these characters, whereas uh, I think the phrase that makes me sort of lose what's left of my hair is when people say, oh, it's just a review. Just a review means that you have worked <coughs> like crazy to get the right words and the right mm -hmm. music in the right order with the right people. Mm -hmm. You juggle, you juggle, you mm -hmm. juggle, and then you work even harder mm -hmm. to make the whole thing look effortless. Mm -hmm. And then you work hard to keep it light, and then people say, oh, of course, you're just enjoying yourself. And you think, oh, God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, we expect this from the, I'm, I'm talking about the um, uh, members of the profession um, who will say, oh, it's just a review. Mm -hmm. That really irritates me. Uh, you have to have you have to have the ears of a bat to do this. Uh, I'm thrilled to be able to say that the author himself, on this particular evening, when I said, uh, "You'll notice I've cut a bit here and there because I sliced everything on. If I felt something was going on even a second too long, out two bars. Nothing even as common as four bars. Two bars go out, uh, which is harder." Uh, <laughs> And uh, the right jokes, there were some things I thought, oh, but that's such a funny line. I thought, yes. we've had enough, and that's it, yeah. etc. Mm -hmm. So I said, mm -hmm. with a little trepidation, you know, I said, you notice I've sliced here and there and cut this, that, and everything. Nothing went on too long. I said, thank you. Uh, were you in this, uh, this uh, Broadway yourself? In yes. 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 Uh, who were the other people? Barbara Kaysen and Jamie Ross. Mm -hmm. And 
they go to. Yes. And uh, no, the difference between doing the review and the play, well, the fun the play is much much easier because um, there are characters yes. and the plot. Yes, you are and a so character. So here it matters that there. you're you. You know, I mean, there. for instance, yeah. like the present after the trade of Peter, you know, there's Gary S. and Dean, and he's in this state when the, when the mm-hmm. play opens, and he mm-hmm. ends up with, instead of with the damp, he ends up with his first mm-hmm. wife, and all the shenanigans that go along there, but you've got a plot going along there. There again, uh, I think it's my training in the review and the musical theatre uh, that. Uh, helps me a great deal because you know when a scene's going on too long mm-hmm. uh, and you think you listen to it and you listen to it in rehearsal and then a few previews and all of a sudden you get that telltale <coughs> from the audience you think mm-hmm. if I had enough of this have we made the point how can we cut and once you start mm-hmm. to do that it's amazing as long as you're working with sympathetic mm-hmm. people as Peter was and we slice the hell out of that play mm-hmm. and uh, without being in any way unkind to it or saying oh this is rubbish it's just that because no, we did overwrite very badly, mm-hmm. except in two or three plays. And so we would slice that. And uh, so the main thing, as far as I was concerned, as far as the play was concerned, was constructing, making sure the construction of the play was, in fact, as tight as it would be from the review point of view. Uh, and that's how it was. Mm-hmm. If I had lots of money, like your friend who has, uh, yes, if it were to be another dream story, another dream story like that, uh, what would be a good idea for me to spend my money on? I'm going to do a Noel Coward play. You're going to do a Noel Coward play. Yes. You would do do a reworking... I'm going to get you to direct you now. Absolutely. Mm. You couldn't have a smart Mm -hmm. choice. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) uh, You would do... Uh, something which I have called a coward quartet, which is four plays from the International 830 series. Not three plays, not three plays in three acts. It is four plays in two acts, uh, edited, some of them quite severely, mm-hmm. and they go as it's, it's a quartet, and the first movement is, uh, like she would say, an andante. The second one is, um, what's the faster one, Lou? Allegro. Allegro, that's mm-hmm. right. The third one is, is uh, Adagio ma non troppo, uh, and the last one is, is um, uh, Brillante. And uh, it is the essence of, I like to think of it, the essence of the best of those one-act plays, mm-hmm. uh, which are again among the major achievements of Noel as a playwright. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a tour de force for the leading man and the leading woman, as it was originally for Noel and Gertie. Mm-hmm. Um, is that the thing with still life in? Uh, still life not in that, yes. Yeah. Still life is not in, in my, no. in my, in my in mind because uh, it's already still life been is brief encounter, yes. brief encounter, and no. you can't do better. You can't you do better, simply yes. can't do better. Mm-hmm. Now, my choices are We Were Dancing, which is an extraordinary bit of mm-hmm. sweet little sketch, yes. little whisper of the wind, yes. going into Hands Across the Sea, which yeah, is well, arguably oh, the best one act play, one of the best one act plays ever written. Then going in that, then there's intermission. Then, yes. you, then I would do shadow play, which is a, again a very dark play, mm-hmm. a very dark bittersweet mm-hmm. play, and then ending up with red peppers, uh, cut down to 20 minutes, which is about as much as you wanted that. Well, I think this has enormous possibilities, but alas, I haven't the money. But I'm sure you can manage it. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. No, people have been very enthusiastic about this. I adapted this in an idle moment uh, some years ago, and people have picked it up and said, oh, this is absolutely wonderful. Oh, this has so much the spirit of Noel without the length, Mm -hmm. etc., etc. Mm -hmm. But it's a class act uh, in a theatre that doesn't have a lot of use for class act. And then what would you positively 
asked me not to spend my money on. I mean, and I, if I'm going to do some Noel Coward, and you say, no, 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 I wouldn't do that, what would you, do you think would be the... Oh, the choice. It's the choice. Choice. Yeah. I mean, don't you so there are too many things, don't you? Or this was a man, or the Marquis, or... Oh, there's quite a lot. There's a lot to choose from. Yeah. Yes. So you'd keep me under control? Oh, firmly. Yes. Very firmly, yes. yes. But then it was a remarkable thing that he... Uh, he couldn't stop writing, obviously, eh? that he wrote all those things. And that, yes, he had, a great, he had a great facility. He yes. said he had a great facility yes. for it. Um, Didn't he say something about, I'll be... People will think of me as a better writer after I'm gone. Do you remember that little, that bit in the, yeah, you can see I've been reading the diaries. <laughs> and he said, I wonder if that's true. He, he, he said that his, that he, his music and his uh, personality got in the way or something. I wonder if that, well, you, It is possible, that's yes. what I was saying earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <coughs> uh, the music is very potent. I mean, you know, strange how potent cheap music is. Yes. Dun-dum, dun-dum. Yes. But those songs, I mean, when they come, especially when I hear... Uh, I hear the response of the audience to the songs yes. and this, in this yes. show that happens to be perfectly yes. constructed. Uh, but you can hear a pin drop. I'm, I mean, last night, for instance, on a wet Monday, we had almost a full house, um, basically a lot of very young people, and Catherine came on and just sang very simply, yes. I'll follow my secret heart. Yes. Oh, you can hear a pin red, drop. Yes. Wonderful. I wonder if the... Uh world is longing for this sort of stuff now. You know, are we tired of uh, always having... I think there are pockets of resistance. Yes. Mm -hmm. I just think of uh, dynasty, how people must love looking at people who are in happier circumstances than they are, yes. Mm-hmm. It's much, it's well, I mean, I think Oak will have, will have a healthy run. I mean, we're not, we're not going to get the Cats crowd. Mm-hmm. We're not going to get the Starlight Express crowd. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think for the people who want this, they want it quite a lot, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. that's fine. Yes, and because there are people like... Um, yes. Yeah, I like, what, I like, what I like is, is what, I, what I think of the crossover audience. Um, that doesn't know anything about Noel Coward and comes and finds yes. out quite a lot. Yes. You know, I was thinking of the people who are going to Common Pursuit, for example, the Simon Gray mm-hmm. play. Mm-hmm. See, that's a play that really is, uh, Noel Coward uh, always said, you know, the, the audience must understand what's going on. He always went on about that, didn't he? And uh, so maybe people are longing for that kind of thing. I think there is, there is an appreciation for literacy. Yes, yes, um, that's true. I wouldn't invest millions of my own money uh, mm-hmm. uh, but I mean, I think, as I say, there are pockets of resistance, mm-hmm. and I think there's, there's enough carriage trade to keep um, mm-hmm. things like on pursuit mm-hmm. and O'Coward going, so mm-hmm. that uh, we haven't lost total touch with uh, that form of theatre. Mm-hmm. Now, I wonder if we've... Uh, can you think of things that I haven't... that you'd like to talk about, because we're going to open this to the meeting, but maybe there are things that I've left out that well, I, I would... Know, just I think it's much better to sort of have one-on-one better. one thing here, yes. All right, so, shall we? Has anybody anything? Any response? Yes. I may not be able to but I was at a funeral recently which was supposedly the last thing Noel ever wrote. Yes. And I thought of this. When I have fears that I shall cease to be, I can't remember the rest of it, yes. But the memorial service that we had for Noel after he joined the Feather Choir, Kathleen Nesbitt, Wrote, uh, read that at the time. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
I think. What about the girl who stopped? Did he direct that? <coughs> no, he wrote words and music. Joe Layton directed it. Was he around a lot during the process? He was around quite a lot during the process, uh, immensely supportive, uh, and um, loved Joe's work a great deal as well as I have. And uh, he did take over, as a matter of the fact, Joe suddenly turned bright yellow with hepatitis and left us in Philadelphia uh, about two days before John Kennedy was murdered. And so the show had been frozen. Uh, but for instance, uh, he had to think very quickly on his feet. The first, number, the first big number of the show was a duet for Joe Ferrer and myself. Uh, and the whole play was set in, was, was a, a built around this, this Balkan, mythical Balkan kingdom. Uh, and the first number done by Joe and myself was called Long Live the King, If He Can. It was totally and entirely about methods of assassination. So that had to be dropped immediately, and the new number had to be fudged up quite quickly. And by this time, Joe was bright yellow in Lenox Hill Hospital, and so Noel directed that and just sort of oversaw it. But that was his only um, involvement in that in the directing department. Did you ever observe him direct anything else? No. I never saw, actually, I never saw him. Uh, I never saw him do one of his own plays. The only time I ever saw him perform was in the Apple Car by Bernard Shaw in 1951. I never saw Betty Lawrence ever. Fancy, mm -hmm. um, he, he can't have done many plays of other people. This is, I think, the only, the only yeah. one. Yes. And, uh, yes. I got it. Yes. Didn't Shaw say, don't read me to him? Shaw, was, they had a correspondence, I read that, that he said, you mustn't That's read right, me. I think, uh, yes. I think they, they got on, back. didn't they? I think they got on, the two of them. I suppose so. Yes. yes. Was, uh, wasn't, didn't, did Noel only come into his review, you know, the Café de Paris and Las Vegas when things were going badly with his plays? He hadn't, he, that, it came in at that period, didn't yes, it? Yes, it came absolutely out of the blue, as yes. far as I understand. I mean, uh -huh. I haven't read the same biographies as you. <laughs> uh, and absolutely out of the blue, there he was in, in, in Las, Las Vegas. Yes. Entertaining what he referred to as the Nest Café Society. <laughs> yeah, and, he was uh, very funny about those things. Yeah. Yes. But of course, I mean, he had a great, great uh, background in review. I mean, to, uh, to this day, several people say that this year of grace, which was 1928, which was a review written entirely by Noel, uh, was one of the best reviews ever done. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a phenomenal thing because at that time, a review, which in England was, well, and, and in the States, as a matter of fact, mm -hmm. was, uh, was a very viable form. Mm -hmm. uh, but the idea was always a ragbag of things and had speciality mm -hmm. turns and mm -hmm. dancers and jugglers and all sorts of things and popular comedians. Uh, but the idea that one man would mastermind an entire review mm -hmm. from start to finish mm -hmm. was an amazing thing. Mm -hmm. And Noel did that with the Sierra Grace, out of which came um, Dance Little Lady and Room Review with the James mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And uh, he had enormous respect for the review for them. Which is why I was so pleased yeah. when he said, after oh, nothing went on too long. Yes, yes. Uh, because the, there were so many reviews in London that they were, it, it, it is a, a wonderful form. I was delighted to go even to. Well, they, you know, I can find. It's nice. Yeah, yes, it's, it's a, it's a really. It's got uh, this sort of disfavour here because there seems mm -hmm. to be no sort of med um, um, uh, midway between uh, the very lavish uh, Ziegfeld yeah. follies and the old yeah. Caravanities and uh, the very tiny and very uh, uh, tight uh, the Julius Monk shows of the uh, of the fifties. Mm -hmm. And um, it's not really around. In fact, it's a, it's a dirty word. We're not even. We're not even, one of them even called a review this time, because yes, the, the, uh, I see the obviously people said it's a dirty word, the dirty people won't come. Yes. 
Did you see him uh, doing any of his... Uh, I only remember seeing him at the, at the theatrical garden party doing his songs. Never you seen didn't... Oh, I was in a tent doing it. An immense, I was suddenly, it was an immense surprise to me when somebody played me the uh, kinescope of the show that he did live with Mary Martin in Together With Music, live, 90 minutes. Imagine. Um, and I saw this... I was quite amazed, and I realized that something was going on in my mind that I'd never actually seen him do these numbers. I'd heard the numbers on the albums, and God knows I'd been mm -hmm. emptying rooms doing them myself. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. this was the first time I was actually seeing him doing it. Mm -hmm. He wasn't underacting as much as he, you might think. In fact, there was quite, quite a lot of... <laughs> Mary was wonderful. Mm -hmm. but I thought he was um, <coughs> overacting. <laughs> yes. Yes, I took a car to England in 75, where they didn't understand it for a moment. They, it, was, it was far too fast for them. Uh, it also came from the United States, which is not a very good thing to do. Uh, I say that quite deliberately. What? This is a hard. This is a hard one. Uh, the, the show was an enormous. We had wonderful previews. Had a wonderful op opening night. The next day in the paper there was hate mail. It said this show has no construction, no charm, no polish, no style. All the things that the American paper said this show has construction, style, polish. I said it, it couldn't possibly be that this is some sort of backlash here. Could it be? And the producer said, I'm afraid it could. It's a very tricky subject to get into, and we're not going to put this. <laughs> no, it was a very, it was a very strange. But also, it was, it was a totally, um, it was, a, it was a strange thing to do because they've already had Cowardly Custard. It's all right, is it? It changes itself. Yes, I was going. Uh, yes, they, they were Cowardly, to talk about Cowardly Custard. Cowardly Custard there, which, which I did, which I didn't see. No, because I was too busy doing a card at the time. But I've heard the album. Um, every, and, and to me, this is totally my own personal thing, my own personal reaction. The construction of it um, uh, boggles my mind. I had no idea what Wendy was thinking well, of. This it, was Bernard Myers, wasn't yes, it? Yes, yes. It was Bernard, but Wendy Toy did it. Bernard Myers Theatre, but Wendy did it. Oh, when destroyed it, destroyed it. yes, yes. Uh, it was interminable. Uh, I mean, it went on. I mean, out of the entire show could be done in the yeah. first act. I didn't understand the construction at all. Mm -hmm. And every straightforward, head-on cliche yes. that you could possibly do yes. was done right there. Pat Routledge, who was a great friend and a very gifted lady, said, I'm going to do Marvelous Party. Therefore, she says she does it like Beatrice, really doing Marvelous Party. And you think, that's done. Uh, because then you are competing mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. memories or records of Beatrice, the mezzanine soprano, mm -hmm. uh, doing Marvelous Party. And when I came to do Marvelous Party, I looked at it and thought, yes, I think this number should be done. Well, I'm not going to do that, and I'm not going to do that. And I thought, I'm going to do it from situations that I know all too well in real life, with a dark hangover, and did it that way. But I mean, it's like rethinking things. With Cardi Custom, mm -hmm. nothing was being thought. It was mm -hmm. all done head on, like, yes, exactly as it had been done before, and the English ate it up, because the English do prefer their musicals to be slightly amateur. Uh, and uh, so it was a totally calculated risk on the producer's part to take a crowd over there. And uh, the only happy part of the experience was that I did get to know Geraldine McEwen, who became my leading lady, and um, I worked in Dorf this day. You became your leading lady in what? Okay. Oh, oh in Ocala, yes. did you really? Yes. Yeah. 
She hardly seems, she seems about as well as mundane now, but I mean, nobody's ever complained much about that. <laughs> yes. And she's yes. just gorgeous in her daughter. Yes. So has it ever been done since, I wonder, during the story of the... Oh, it's been done quite, quite uh, a lot. I get the, royal, the, I get the royalties from, from, from various from stock and amateurs. Uh, and in England, areas. yes, yeah. I think, but not, on, uh, but not in the West End or anything, no, no. Oh, it's been done all over the world. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Doing, yes. It's played at so. dinner theatre in downtown Kuala Lumpur. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yes, sort of there's Jim's asking something. I'm curious about the uh, tour it uh, it was going to be it was a strange it was a strange thing this, this again is a whole it's an extraordinary period of my life when on account of doing Oh Coward for John Neville in Edmonton Alberta directing it uh, and we had a wonderful time and John was spending in the show and I came back and I got a call from John saying that Peter O'Toole's company in Toronto had just lost their director for present laughter and he had recommended me. So don't be surprised if I got a call. So I was not surprised. I got the call. I went up to meet Peter, who I'd never met before, who looked very strange indeed, but those blue eyes are very blue indeed. And when those blue eyes look directly into the middle of your eyes and want an answer, you better have one. So I had a few. I was hired, and I went up there to work for four weeks, and I stayed for four months. Uh, in the course of this, they were doing Uncle Vanya, which was being directed by somebody else. Uh, and it was awful. Um, uh, but that was the main, that was to be the main offering. And the flip side, as it were, was Pleasant, was pleasant Laughter. Um, but as it turned out, Uncle Vanya was a bomb, and Pleasant Laughter suddenly went, became the hit. And so Vanya uh, was dropped. Um, and uh, this Pleasant Laughter was continued on the little tour, tourette into Chicago and then at the Kennedy Center. Well, I must say, um, uh, Roger Stevens didn't want it at all. He said, but I've had this play here recently with Douglas Fairbanks. Uh, and it's dreadful. Uh, and Peter said, you want me, you get pleasant laughter. He wanted mm-hmm. Peter, so he did. And he came the opening night, and I saw vestiges of what only could call a smile on Roger Stevens' face. Can you imagine? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, could have been smiling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said, this isn't the same play. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, and what happened with Uncle Vanya was that he brought, we brought it back, uh, Peter who had had something to do with the, uh, quite a lot to do with the translation and adaptation that was being used, uh, minded very badly that the production had been a bomb, and he asked me would I, by this time we were getting on like crazy and making plans for the future, etc., etc., and he asked me would I take a look at it and um, uh, redirect it uh, for a special sort of two weeks at the end of the engagement at the Kennedy Center. So one afternoon we were in Chicago at the time, I said, yes, I said, but I do have grave reservations about this particular translation, adaptation, because it was very, very Irish indeed. You didn't know whether you were in, you know, downtown Dublin or Leningrad or whatever. Um, and Peter was playing Vanya. You know, uh, the um, elderly gentleman who is, doesn't know how to get on with, with women and um, is sort of indecisive in this, that, and the other. And Peter comes on looking exactly like Peter. So um, the whole thing was thrown immediately. Uh, so we started reading this, this thing together. And I was, because I was complaining about the translation, I finished one large chunk, and I said, that, you see, that is so much better. And he said, you want to play Vanya? I said, sure. Double it. So he played Astrov, which of course he should have been playing all the time. I said to him later, I said, why that? And he played Astrov to begin with. He said, well, Barry does that, and Michael does that. It's so easy, dear. 
And uh, so then we had this wonderful time, and uh, I played Banya and he played Astrov, and uh, to date it's the most um, extraordinary acting experience of my entire, entire life. He is categorically the most generous gentleman that um, I've ever worked with. Extraordinary. The, the scenes that we had together were just breathtaking. You acted and directed? Yes, yes. Loved every minute of it. I mean, by that time, I was practically running the company. Uh, Peter was very happy about this. Uh, I was like saving, I, I made present laughter into a big hit. Uh, I then went in and um, reorganized Uncle Vanya and did exactly with, with Peter what I wanted to do with the translation. Uh, reorganized the sets and we did the lighting. And uh, the acting was actually the last thing I thought about. I thought, yes, I can do that. I know who that is. God knows I know who that is. And on we went, and um, I had a wonderful time. I loved it. Was that the first check off you ever had? Uh, I can't remember. Um, no, no, no. Have you done anything? No, no, nobody asked me. No. Mm -hmm. so. When you directed yourself acting in the play, mm. do you have any special methods for trying to keep yourself on the stage? Yes, with the only time I've ever, I've ever done that. Um, I mean, this, the, the Banya thing was quite an, was a sort of anomalous situation. Um, and it was for two weeks. It wasn't like, for, you know, forever. As far as Okara was concerned, uh, what I did is I taped the performance. I got special permission from Equity um, and taped the performance and had a look and see what is that strange old creature doing up there. Yeah. Yes, when, when you were conceiving the uh, Okara, did you have a particular not really. I think the uh, because it started in this sort of modest way, it started in cabaret and became a Bay of Theatre piece and economics had a great deal to do with it. And so you think what is you know, what can we get most mileage out of for the range of material that we do from the, the musical stuff to the ballads, etc. etc. And we really came up with the basic um, time honoured combo of two pianos, bass and drums. Uh, what we've also added for this uh, it's a synthesizer, so we can get a harp. I just love the harp. The harp belongs in this thing. Um, I have visions of us in the Helen Hayes. With, if, if the Helen Hayes had a fit, we wonder we would have a real harp. Look at the idea of having them there and some lady, because it always seems to be a lady, going there doing blue, 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 like that for, uh, for the ballad. It would be so wonderful, romantic, and classic. Do mm -hmm. you have any comments on the um, uh, Vividly. It was roughly the equivalent of seeing a friend being mugged. Uh, I thought it was categorically the worst production of a good play uh, that has ever been my misfortune to see, and Brian Murray is a very good friend of mine. I mean, I left during the act break of Act Two because I simply couldn't bear it. It was a classic example to me of how to get it absolutely wrong, not trust the material at all, uh, to misconceive the material, uh, to an extent that I thought was downright offensive. I mean, Hay Fever is a very difficult play for an American audience. It's, not been a big, it's never been a big success here as it has in England. It has a great deal to do with class consciousness and a sort of social milieu that doesn't, doesn't actually happen here, despite the fact that, oddly enough, Hay Fever was based on a weekend party that we all read the same books. Yeah, yes, um, yes, yes, yes. That was, uh, in fact, thrown on, 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 on Long Island uh, in, in the 20s. 
Uh, but the ambiance, as Noel wrote it, it has a very English thing here. It happens to be a perfectly constructed play in which virtually nothing happens at all, except there is enormous interplay between eight characters. Uh, and it's very important to get them right. Uh, so what was, what was given to us on stage were four literally screaming neurotics of the Bliss household who had invited four people that I think would frighten Bernard Getz uh, as guests. Uh, and the whole situation was so macabre that I, I, I didn't recognize the dialogue. When, when sort of bits of the dialogue came through, um, I mean, my cuticles ached. Uh, I thought it was so, so awful. Rosemary Harris was an actress that I adore. I seemed to be acting quite by herself as well she might uh, in circumstances. Uh, I gave a new meaning to the word adaptation. Uh, and the rest, I, I just never wanted to see again. I thought it was, it was, I couldn't understand how Brian, who was a very nice person, we've had long talks, as a matter of fact, over the years about Coward and the canon and the master and all those usual sort of things. I would go directly like that and produce something that was so, to me, actively offensive. The most bizarre thing about Hay Fever was that it got wonderful reviews from the papers that count. Luckily, the only thing I can think about, the public has not had, uh, and it died, and it never did any business at all, and died quite quickly. But um, it was one of the things where, where I said when, when, when The Wizard of Oz came out of the woodwork and said, you know, let's do O'Coward, I said, I don't think this is the time for me to do O'Coward because, as you were kind enough to say earlier, I do believe in trusting the material and trusting, and trusting the audience. Very much, I very much mind about that. Trust the material, trust the audience to hear it so that the understatement, yes, you can, and I hear it night after night, and they do, they do trust that. So this, this overplaying of Brian Murray, who got wonderful notices, George Scott gets wonderful notices for doing present rather than design for them, and they're all done with sledgehammers and get wonderful notices. And I said, I don't think my approach is going to be at all uh, fashionable or commercial. Luckily, I was wrong. Yeah. Well, so and so, there were various people said, oh, this is just pallid. Uh, well, we got over that, and the audience is coming and telling me, no, it isn't pallid, and they, and they are responding to the material. Yes, the, this was the point that I was making right at yeah. the beginning, is that you really are playing the material. Mm -hmm. Yes. On each occasion that you've mounted the hotel, Good question, good question. Uh, I prefer not to, as a matter of fact, because uh, I mean, I try to do it as little as possible in person now. Um, but uh, again, I'm thinking about, because author, director, basic thing, interpreting the material through the actors to the audience, and the audience is North American, to set up a slight barrier that you have three people talking with absolutely khaki English accents puts a slight onus on the material that is not necessary as you get wonderfully stylish American performances as I had with Jamie and with Barbara originally and with Catherine and Patrick as I have now what it does it helps it helps the material I mean there are times when I've been doing this with some um, other American performers or indeed it happens, it happens now uh, and the, the audience response to them is quite direct because they know, even though they are speaking in mm -hmm. uh, uh, 
they're not speaking in English accents, but they're speaking in a slightly sort of stylized way, but it is with an American slight mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That and that slight was what accent was, there. Yeah, and I yeah. find myself, I come on with my old-fashioned English voice, and I do get a decided sense from the audience that people suddenly change, and they say, oh, here's that distinguished elderly English gentleman come to talk to us, we mustn't laugh. <laughs> but then, that really is a very, because, you know, to an English ear, usually you're very much put off by this excessive English which isn't English, yeah. maybe. And therefore this stuff didn't come, this didn't come in the way at all, so that you really were, I mean, I as an English person was taken directly to the material. That's what that's I thought great. was well, so That's great, well that's what I love to hear, which, yes. which I love from a person with an English background yes. like yourself or from America, yes. or from the audiences that yes. are telling me. So I had a different, uh, but yes. that's, and usually I spend my time like, oh no, oh please, no, no, don't do that, no, 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 and, it, and it's it's very, it's very important, but that's again, yes. this is what I regard as my, right my responsibility were, as director uh, to, as I keep on saying, because it's the only important thing that director does, interpret the audience to the audience mm -hmm. from there. And if that is part of the job, yes. then that is part of the job. Yes. It's a very good question. Yes, and I see what a wise move it is on your part to do that. When you it's, not easy, I'm, it's not easy. No, to no, it's, no, that's it's not easy. Show to cut. No, because of course it's really in a way going against the natural rhythms of American speech as well. Yes, so I mean Catherine, uh, bless her heart, uh, has been working like crazy on the whole thing because her, her regular speech pattern has mm -hmm. nothing to do with mm -hmm. material and what I wanted to do was, was use Catherine's electric personality, because mm -hmm. uh, I've been a great fan of hers for years, uh, Mm -hmm. But to use that through this, mm -hmm. and and um, it's taken it's taken yeah. a lot of effort on both our parts, particularly hers. Yeah. Uh, but it does work, yeah. and she's having a wonderful time. But she has to do an enormous range of yeah. stuff. Well, that you've succeeded yeah. in, uh, yeah, yeah. very. We really do get straight at the material. Yes. Look. Uh, assuming that the present uh, is larger than the one which the student as a director, do you find it a large adjustment? A good question. Uh, it's a very strange thing. It's a very strange thing with, with this show, which is why I know that the work of whenever I've really constructed this thing, that it's really like, like chromium steel. Uh, it was done first in Cabaret, uh, and then it went to the little tiny 250-seat theatre at the New Theatre. Uh, and I've been dragging my feet saying, no, it shouldn't, well, all right, maybe a little theatre. That's it. Nothing larger than 250. It can't possibly do anything larger than that. Then uh, we were asked to take La Fangolith, and in Nathangaleth, uh, we played a theater that the only available theater was 400. And it worked. And they kept on getting progressively bigger. At one point, we played the Detroit Music Hall, which held 1,900 people, and it still worked. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, it's a tough little bird. Mm -hmm. uh, for this revival, what I decided to do, because the theater was bigger than the, the new theater that we first had, and also times have changed, and I wanted a different sort of view of it. In the original production in 72, Herbert Sen, Helen Pond, the most talented designers, uh, I said, I want this not to be any particular period, so I made it into a toy theatre. It was highly decorated, and just, but very simple, so it was a big proscenium arch around there, and we're just concentrating on three performers and very, very good lighting, uh, and just so that nothing got in the way of the material. Uh, for this production, uh, we followed almost the same principle, but this time I decided on a new look, and we had this sort of vaguely sort of erte look, and wonderful, glamorous screen drops, which again, only, which are beautiful to look at, and sometimes people applaud. Uh, but again, they contribute to the material. It's not like saying, okay, here's a set which is going to take your mind off the show. Mm -hmm. No, there is a, there's a particular picture at the top of the number called Design for Dancing, for instance, which is just a knockout look, and takes the audience right directly into the lady with the fan, and the lady with the fan takes you into the, what the number is. Mm -hmm. 
and so it's again to do with the, um, the material. But, uh, that was only my only uh, concern with the size of the theater. Is this your only experience with Uh, in what way? Sorry. Well, I mean, the way you spoke about the heart, you seem, your experience seems to be mostly the theater. Yes, well, I've done quite a lot of review work. I mean, I've got quite a good musical background, uh, and I've, I've been in them, and um, it's it's a thing that, uh, even if I haven't done a lot of it professionally, I'm, I'm sort of fairly, I've got a pretty good musical background to do with instrumentation and listening to things and I'm kind of thought about that. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, because uh, if it didn't work, I, to I tossed it out. Now, the first thing was the, the, the production became Sweet Potato, where everybody took their clothes off. Uh, that was a whole thing that was to do with six people. It was, again, tightly constructed, but it was six people, and therefore I was able to do things that I you can't do with three people. Uh, when I came to reconstruct the show for the what, what is now, now Okawa, the, the first cabaret version of it uh, was done for three specific people, myself, Tom Eber, and Don Christie, and uh, it suited us. Uh, as a matter of fact... Uh, and then when the second company went in, when we left, um, various things changed because they didn't sue the performers. As a matter of fact, Gordon Thompson, who is now uh, the big, uh, one of the big stars on Dynasty, he came in, he took over something, and he couldn't do one of the numbers that I was doing in the show. Uh, and he'd always like, you were there. So that went into the show on account of that Gordon wanted to sing it, and now remains one of the sort of the strengths of, um, of the show. It's so interesting to hear you talking like this because it looks as if some wonderful very precise, almost metaphysical connection has gone on between everything, and it really has just arrived, even although... Uh, well, I'm glad it yeah. looks like that, but I mean, as I say, as I say yes. this is a thing that maddens when people say, oh, it's just a review. I mean, it yes, takes the most enormous I, concentration I to a, do that. I just know, never thought that, that that would be the kind of background. I thought you would spend years just working out how this connected with that in some very deep metaphysical kind of way. I think it's so remarkable. Well, maybe that's what went on with that, with yes, that sound, but I mean, when you're coming, 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 to, coming to, to something, you think, okay, we've got a fast number, you've got to give a slow number yes. next, it's simple as that, you know. Yes. Okay, we've got, you know, you can only afford two ballads. Yes. I mean, there, there, there are various basic rules, you know, you've got to, you've got to get a good flash range for Act One, <coughs> and, the, and the second number in the second act is very yeah. important. There are various basic all those things that, that, that Practical things, yes. Mm. Well, the thing that is very interesting of how, how, how it did change, uh, that it's... Um, and it changed, uh, it changed during the previews of, in 72. It was one number that I loved a great deal, uh, but again, it just made this thing go on for about two minutes too long, so I cut that. And the, and the, the format that we ended up with in, when we opened in 72 is exactly the thing that we do today, although I've occasionally in, internally changed numbers. For instance, there's a number called Uncle Harry in that one. It's now called Whatever Happened to the Tots. Uh, and they're the same sort of rumpty tum sort of... Mm -hmm. I mean, some of the, a lot of the numbers double. I mean, sometimes I do a number about Mrs. Wentworth Brewster, sometimes I do a number called Alice is Attic and they are virtually the same number. Mm -hmm. And I only do the one or the other just to say what is left of my reason. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, Jim said I was to be sure to get you out of here in good time because of what I you have to do tonight. Yes. So 
all that Thanks. remains is for me to thank you very much. It has really been a wonderful afternoon. Again, this is Hope Clark, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members. Visit us on the web at www.ssdc.org. This online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theatre is made through the words of the people who make theatre. Visit them online at americantheaterwing.org.